This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi on the Heart Sutra was given at Shove Chapel in Colorado Springs, Colorado on April 26, 2004. Good evening, everyone. Some of the, the sutras we chanted tonight were a little bit different because for the last five years or so, um, I've been involved in something we call the Liturgy Project with a couple of my colleagues and co-conspirators in California, John Tarrant and Rich Deming. Um, John and I do the, the book and Richie does the music. <laughs> and um, when we get a couple of new things done, then we change them as we did this time with uh, Hakuin, which is a retranslation and the, um, the Kanzeon chant, the Guanyin chant, which is a, a new translation altogether of the Japanese. I thought what I would do tonight, um, since, since it's a relatively limited amount of time, would be to spend that, that limited amount of time with perhaps the chewiest of uh, all of the sutras in, in our liturgy, which is the Maha Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra. So if you want to take a look at that while I'm speaking, uh, that's, on, that's on page one, two. The Prajna Paramita, oh thanks, that's great. The Prajna Paramita Sutras, which means uh, scriptures of the great insight that reaches the other shore. And we'll talk about that in a minute. That, that literature developed around the beginning of the Common Era, about 2,000 years ago. And it was sort of the second great wave in the development of Buddhist philosophy. Um, the Prajnaparamita literature is voluminous, literally, 600 volumes it takes to, to cover it all. Uh, and when that literature moved from India to China, it took 2,000 monastics and 2,000 lay people one year to translate those 600 volumes from, from uh, Sanskrit into Chinese. But they said that that year they were working, the peach blossoms bloomed six times throughout the year. <laughs> Um, what we chant the, um, is called the, the, the Heart Sutra for short. And it's in the sense that it is the heart of all of those 600 volumes of Prajnaparamita literature, that they're condensed and distilled down into this extremely potent, relatively short chant known to us as the Heart Sutra. Um, so the words, the name. Prajna is a Sanskrit word and it's often translated as wisdom, but I want to make a, a discrimination here that I actually think is really important. I think a better translation for prajna is insight because it refers to a kind of penetrating clarity that comes with meditation. Um, it's, a, it's an, an ability to see clearly and quickly um, <clears throat> and, and make a quick judgment. Uh, 
there's a, there's a sense that in meditation we, we find, we rediscover this innate intuitive connection with the vastness and that the nature of that innate intuitive connection is this prajna. It's not like a skill we learn, you know, or something we add on, but actually something that's innate in us that we, that we rediscover through meditation. Now, something that's, that's really interesting about the sutra is the person who's practicing this prajnaparamita, this extremely, you know, perfected form of insight, is Avalokiteshvara. Um, Avalokiteshvara is the, the bodhisattva, the embodiment of compassion. Avalokiteshvara is the Sanskrit name um, the, in the Guanyin Sutra of Endless Life. Guanyin is the Chinese version of Avalokiteshvara. Kanzeon, which we use in the chant, is the Japanese version. So Avalokiteshvara, Guanyin, and Kanzeon um, are the same being of uh, extremely wandering gender, sometimes masculine, sometimes feminine, who is considered the, the, the embodiment of compassion. And I think it's tremendously important that it is, it is compassion who is doing this prajna meditation. Um, we get wisdom when insight, the insight that comes from meditation meets compassion. And so here's the bodhisattva of, of compassion doing this insight meditation. And out of that alchemy comes what I think really is is wisdom that it 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 needs both parts it needs the warmth as well as the clarity and there's a there's a lovely echo of that in the Prajnaparamita itself um, that idea of Prajnaparamita this perfection of insight came to be personified as the mother of all the Buddhas and you can sort of get that metaphorically that you know ha- that this insight would be the mo- the mother of awakening. But um, she also became actually a goddess, and there are, there are images of Prajna Paramita. And so you have this echo of of that insight gestating in the womb, you know, of 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 this female figure, and um, out of that comes wisdom. Out of that is born the Buddhas. So that, so that wisdom is a kind of combination of a clear mind and an open heart. And you really need both those parts. Sometimes you'll see people whose prajna leaps way out ahead of their compassion. They have a tremendous insight. They're very clear. But they don't have the open heart yet to go with that. And that clarity can feel like a knife to them. It doesn't feel good. They, they can see everything. They can understand everybody's stuff that they do. You know, they can they can be very clear about what's going on around them. But there's no warmth in it. There's no understanding. There's no um, sort of give about about how we all are as human beings. And that's a very painful place until the compassion kind of catches up and the two come together. So. In the term prajna paramita, if prajna is insight, paramita is the thing which means gone to the other shore. 
there's this, I mean, we, we can gloss that as the highest attainment of or, or the perfection of, the completion of. Um, but, but actually, I think there's something beautiful in the image. There's a sense that our ordinary minds, our ordinary heart minds, and our ordinary lives can be like roiling seas. <laughs> you know, they can be choppy and, and um, full of big waves and storms and tiring to swim. Um, and also, uh, there's, a, there's a sense that currents can kind of ripple through them, like, like waves that go rippling over vast sections of the ocean. So karmic currents and, and things that happen in the world and moments in history and all of that go rippling through this ocean. And uh, the cultivation of prajna was seen as a, as a boat that picks you up and carries you across this roiling sea of our ordinary minds and our ordinary lives and takes us to this, this other shore, the shore on the other side. And in my imagination right now, that is um, something we've been talking about for a while. Elaine Scarry's idea of the merciful beach, of being, of being thrown up out of the waters onto a merciful beach so that all of that roiling, um, uncomfortable, uh, aggressive, painful stuff is receding like the waves receding off the beach and we are there in the warm sand, um, safe for the moment from all of that. Okay, so in the first part of the Heart Sutra, you have a kind of introduction, which is, is the whole thing in a nutshell. It's the heart of the Heart Sutra. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, practicing deep prajna paramita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty, transforming all suffering and distress. So the practitioner is Avalokiteshvara, which is to say the practitioner is you. <laughs> whether you believe it or not. It's you. You are Avalokiteshvara. There is no other bodhisattva of compassion but you and your hands and your warmth and your heart and the things you do. So what's being done, what's being cultivated by you is deep prajnaparamita, this deep insight that happens with meditation. And the practice of cultivating that deep insight is clearly seeing the emptiness of things. That's what, that's what seeing that all five skandhas are empty means, and I'll, I'll come back to the skandhas, don't worry. But, but the meaning is seeing the emptiness of everything. So that's the practice. The practice is inquiry. The practice is over and over and over, looking and wondering and asking and, um, and seeing the empty nature of everything. By empty nature is meant not illusory or non-existent, but nothing is independent of everything else. Nothing stands by itself. Everything is connected. So we have the sense of things being separate, but actually underneath we're all connected. And that's what, that's what empty means, empty of self-nature, empty of separateness empty of standing alone. Okay, and then, so we have the practitioner cultivating this, this insight through the practice of seeing the emptiness of things, and the result is transforming all suffering and distress. Um, not a promise that there will be no suffering and distress, 
but a promise that it will be different, that our, that our relationship with it will be different. It will feel different to us. And we'll come back around to that later too. Okay, so all five skandhas are empty. Um, the skandhas were one of the really brilliant parts of early Buddhist philosophy and psychology, which are, are just now <laughs> beginning to really make sense in terms of how people are seeing things through neuro, neuroscience and philosophy and, and um, cognitive studies now. Skanda literally means a heap, a pile of stuff, an aggregate. And the sense was that there aren't these separate independent things. Everything is a combination of these heaps. And if you and, and what we do is we look at those heaps and we we create a self out of the heap. So we I create a you out of the heaps. Um, but actually if you really investigate there is no self there. There's only the accumulation of these things. So the five heaps that out of which everything is made is, um, is form, which is matter, which is the physical part of everything, and um, sensations, which is acquiring data through our sense organs and then evaluating it, uh, how we feel about it, is it either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, perceptions, which is conceptualizing about the stuff we perceive. Um, and that leads to, to having names and words for things. So it leads to thinking about things. Um, the fourth is mental activities, which includes um, intentions which have karmic results. So that's stuff like attention and will and desire and hatred and concentration and all that stuff. And then the fifth is consciousness, which in this system is defined as an awareness of the other four. So everything in the universe is made up of those heaps, and those heaps are always changing by circumstance, by the um, the, the the influence of, of neighboring heaps, you know, and all and all of that stuff. And so you, you, it's not like you're the same five heaps your whole life. You're always changing, and they're rising and falling like sand dunes, sort of. You know, sand gets brought in, and then the wind blows away sand, and so the shape of it is always changing. We get older, we get dumber, you know, um, whatever. And and that's that's the heaps changing. And our great folly as, as human minds is to look, to look for the self, to think that there's a self that somehow connects all of that. Um, okay, so, so we begin to see that. We begin to see that it's just these sand dunes. Everything is sand dunes. The world is made of sand dunes. And we begin to see that nothing really is separate and um, that everything is connected in this fundamental way. And when we do that then, what changes is our attitude toward things. Things can still hurt. There still might be pain and distress. But we don't suffer about it in quite the same way. There's a little bit more spaciousness. Um, There's a little bit of an ability to accept what's going on without wishing it were other. Because the fundamental nature of suffering is wishing it were different than it is. I don't want to be doing this. If it doesn't change, I'm not going to be able to bear it. That's suffering. When someone dies and we grieve, that's pain, but it's not suffering. If someone dies who you love, what would you rather be doing? 
I mean, isn't, isn't what you can give in that circumstance, your grief, isn't that just the right place to be in some way? But if you don't want to grieve, if you don't want to, to admit that this has happened, that the world has changed in this fundamental way, then you suffer because you're fighting against what's going on. Does that, does that, that distinction make sense? And that's, that's the distinction we begin to be able to see with prajna. So the language of, of the Heart Sutra can be pretty high. It can be full of these sort of grand statements and, and big ideas. And I, I wanted to, to, to just give a little bit of a sense of the Chinese tradition because the Chinese are so good about blending these tremendously high concepts with these really nitty-gritty applications. And this is a, this is a teacher called Han Shan Deqing from the Ming Dynasty. So from from 400, 500 years ago, something like that. And just, just the, you know, the language is a little bit old, but stick with it because you'll see that quality. He said, if we people were only able to carry out a contemplation like this one, if we in a single thought suddenly awoke to the fundamentally existent light of wisdom inherent, inhering in our own minds, if we experienced a vast, great, and numinous penetrating understanding like this. Okay, so that, that high language rolls on, right? And you think, yeah. Um, utterly illuminating the original emptiness of the five aggregates and the non-existence of the four great elements, what further dragging along and tying up by accumulated karmic activity could there be? What for- forceful argumentation over others and self, right and wrong, could there be? So boom, he just brings it right down. So all, all of this high fancy, high flutin stuff that seems to have nothing to do with us is re- has really everything to do about how we argue about self and other, about right and wrong, how we're always, you know, judging and having opinions and, and disagreeing with ourselves about things. What comparative scheming over misfortune and fortune, success and failure could there be? How could there be anything in the realm of wealth and poverty, nobility and humble station which could bother our minds? So I say this to say this is really about our lives. You know, this is really, this is really about us and, and so much of that from centuries ago is still so familiar to us in our own con- concerns. Okay, so that was the introduction, and then we get into the body of it, which is about explaining the practice and describing what the experience of prajna is in meditation. And this part of it, Avalokiteshvara, um, kind as he was, comes out of his meditation and addresses Shariputra. Shariputra was one of the ten great disciples of the Buddha, and he was considered first in wisdom. Um, the name Shariputra is beautiful. It means son of the egret. And um, in, in, you know, in, in the Indian sense of things, the egret was a particularly clear-eyed, wise bird. And anybody who's spent any time with egrets know that they also do this incredible meditation you know, where they just stand in the marsh for hours and hours and hours, unblinking and unmoving. Um, so, so Avalokiteshvara, our compassionate nature is speaking to Shariputra, the part of us that, that's, that has insight, the part of us that, is, um, that, that thinks it knows something. And the first thing he says is, um, 
Form is no other than emptiness, and emptiness no other than form. And again, by emptiness is not meant a void that has nothing in it. Emptiness is the whole universe. Emptiness is, is what physicists would call the plenum, which is all of that vast space and everything it contains, including all of the potential. So it's, it's a fullness as much as it's an emptiness. Um, what, again, what it's empty of is the separateness of things. Okay, so form, matter, stuff is no different than that. They're not different than each other, um, although they, they, they appear to be, they're not. Um, one way to think about this is that the Chinese characters that they chose to translate the, the form and emptiness from Sanskrit mean in Chinese, um, the emptiness means the sky, the vast sky, and another meaning for the word that's used for form is color as though we were talking about the sky and the color of the sky. How inseparable is that, you know? And we have a sense that the color of the sky might change. It might be different on different days depending on the weather and on different planets. Heaven knows it's probably different colors altogether. But that sense of the inextricability of the sky and the color of the sky, that's the relationship between form and emptiness. That's the relationship between us and the vastness. One of the old Chinese teachers had a a, a wonderful image um, when he was talking about people's tendencies to pick one or the other, you know, to think that form is more important or mostly in a Buddhist context to think that emptiness is more important. He said they're like two hitching posts. And we hitch ourselves up to one or the other. And I thought that was, there was a sort of wonderful image of, you know, picking a post and then tying ourselves to it, taking a stand there. But that really we shouldn't tether ourselves to one or the other. Um, okay, so then he says the same thing. Form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness exactly form. And then we go into the lists. Sensation, perception, mental reaction, and consciousness are also like this. That list is one of the formulations of the five skandhas. So he's just, he's just repeating that the five skandhas are, are empty in exactly the same thing and that they are both form and emptiness simultaneously. Um, all things are essentially, are essentially empty. Not born, not destroyed, not stained, not pure, without loss, without gain. Um, there's, there's kind of two senses of this and one is the grand sense which is that the ultimate truth about phenomena um, doesn't fall into any kind of duality that's, that's the grand thing there's no duality about things actually and then there's, there's also another more sort of human way to look at that which is all that stuff is the kind of stuff we do with our discriminating minds is it, is it does it exist? Does it not exist? Is it, is it corrupt? Is it pure? Um, is it gaining? Is it losing? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Right? And he's saying that the essential nature of things has nothing to do with any of that kind of stuff that goes on in our minds all the time. All of those ways we judge and evaluate things are meaningless when it comes to the essential nature of things. Um, okay, so then in emptiness there are no five skandhas. 
There's no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind, no color, sound, smell, taste, touch, object of thought, no seeing, and so on, to no thinking, no, no ignorance, and also no ending of ignorance. So, so there, what he's saying is, um, there's no eye, nose, etc. There are no sensory organs. In other words, there's no self. Um, there's no color, sound, smell, taste, touch. There's nothing being perceived. There's no, there's no subject, there's no self, there's no object. There's nothing, there's nothing we're experiencing. Um, and, there, and then there's no field of experience. There's no seeing. And, and when it says and so on, it's not going to go through, it's, it's sparing you the entire list. But what that really would be is no seeing, no hearing, no smelling, no tasting, no touching, okay? But it just avoids the repetition. Um, so even though there's none of this we keep attaching to it we keep attaching to a sense of self a sense of other a self of perception going on and we think that that has something to do with the self Um, then he goes into another list that he doesn't give you all of which is no ignorance and also no ending of ignorance and so on to no old age and death and no ending of old age and death that's the the chain of dependent origination that's how things happen Um, and one thing leads to another so that ignorance leads to our doing stuff and making karma and then karma leads to consciousness we think about it and then consciousness leads to a sense of body and mind and body and mind lead to the six senses the six senses lead to touching things contacting things contact leads to sensation to to the feeling of what that's like sensation leads to craving craving leads to grasping and you know and so on and and that's the endless chain of things that we're caught up in this endless going around and he's saying none of that none of that no suffering cause of suffering cessation and path you may recognize that as the four noble truths even they don't exist um no wisdom and no attainment and it seems to me that one of the ways to look at this long list of no's all the things he's saying aren't part of it is like if you fall crashingly in love with somebody you probably don't think to yourself I get this great rush of endorphins whenever I see that person his face fits the perfect proportions known from classical times to be beautiful you know she has the perfect waist to hip ratio for childbearing (laughs) all those things might be true but that's not it you know Um, they might be part of it but you're not you're not going to understand love by examining hip to waist ratios right and I think there's some, really I do think there's some quality of this, that in these no's. Just throw away all the ways you try to think about this. Throw away all the ways you try to organize all this stuff. And you try to figure it out. You're not going to be able to figure it out. Um, there, is, there is this direct experience in meditation that's, that it's possible to have that has nothing to do with any of these six that's and 14 that others and, and all of that stuff. Um, in particular when he says no wisdom and no attainment I also think that there's a, there's a quality in there that's like, like the Chinese wu wei which is um, often translated as non-action which isn't 
quite what it means. It's more empty action. It's action that's empty of motivation and intention, but it's just spontaneous and responding to things. So, so in that sense, um, empty wisdom and empty attainment, which would be another way to translate that, would is something like um, you know wisdom without any big ideas of what wisdom is and uh, practice without any big ideas of what attaining might be and what we might be attaining. So, um, if you get rid of all that stuff, if you lose all the categories, that's no hindrance in the mind. So everything you think you know, (laughs) let it go, because that's not prajna. Um, and when you do let that go when you do let the hindrances go you find yourself in this natural state of prajnaparamita again it's not a skill we develop or something we add it's what we discover when we let everything else fall away Um, since there's nothing to attain or lose or accumulate or let go of um, we're not any longer living by getting and spending, by trying to figure out, you know, um, who's winning and who's losing. We're not in that anxiety about living and dying. <clears throat> and when, when we're not, that's freedom. Um, when we're not in that constant state of, of accumulating and letting go and getting and spending and all of that, um, then everything is liberation. So, we often talk about how meditation is a deconstructive process. And this is what we're talking about, that it's a way of deconstructing our ideas about things, even our, our good and salutary ideas like the, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Twelve Chains and the um, you know the dependent origination and all of that stuff. But that when we let even all of that stuff go, we find this natural state of prajna, this, this natural state of having a mind that is open to the vastness. When we let go what is a hindrance, then what is true becomes visible. Perhaps the the sort of most touching promise in all of this is that when those hindrances go, there's no fear. And that's, you know, that's something we could spend a whole long time talking about. But that sense that somehow um, when things get simple, when things drop away, fear drops away too. And that, that state of not being afraid is what freedom is. And I think that's something we, can, we just sort of viscerally know. If I weren't afraid, that would be freedom. So, right here is nirvana. Nirvana is another word that's lying on a gurney somewhere attached to tubes and monitors. Um, Forget everything you think about nirvana. It's actually a really simple thing. It's just perfect stillness. It's like the ocean is calmed down and it's not rippling. It's just calm and smooth. 
Um, I found out that there's a, there's a wonderful etymological association with nirvana, which is that it comes from the same root as a word that means the coolness that happens after a fever breaks. And that's such a beautiful description for me. You know, we're in, and another way to think about that roiling sea is the fever of life. And we toss and turn and it's hot and the sheets feel like granite and, and then it breaks. And there's that cool, simple, beautiful feeling that comes when the fever goes. And that's nirvana, the coolness after the fever. Okay, so um, all the Buddhas are hanging out in Prajnaparamita and they're attaining Anyatara Samyak Sambodhi which just means the unsurpassed perfect awakening no big deal but that's just the sense of it then in the last section um, it does this really interesting and strange thing. We've been we've been talking, you know, cognitively almost about this. We've been talking about it in a very explicit, esoteric way, and then you know, it makes us turn, and all of a sudden we're doing a mantra. <laughs> where did the and it's in a, and it's in another language, and we don't even know what it means. Where? Why? Where did the mantra come from? Um, and and there's, a, there's a sense that the that the whole first part of this is a is a um, an open explication of the doctrine of prajna, of the idea of prajna. Um, but the, the mantra is the, is, is the esoteric experience. The mantra is the thing that you can't explain. So there's no explanation. It's sort of, there's sort of nice things that are said about it. You know, it's praised highly. But this is, I think, to remind us that this process is fundamentally a mystery. That it's not something we can get out our notebooks and our slide rules does anybody use slide rules anymore? <laughs> our, our computer, our computers, and you know, our linear accelerators, and figure this out. There is something that's mysterious about it. There is something that happens in this alchemy between insight and compassion inside. There is a gestation, and there is a giving birth. No matter your wandering gender. Um, and that, and that that's summed up in this mantra. And so we say the mantra in Sanskrit as a way of saying, yeah, there's a part of this that is really mysterious. There's a part of this that can't be explained. There's a part of, it, of this that we can't even talk about, but we can gesture toward in saying this mantra together. Gone, gone, gone beyond to the other shore. Awakening filled. Oh, great joy. So um, let me stop there and any questions you have about, about the Heart Sutra and also about any of the other sutras. If, there, if you really had a question about something else, I'd be happy to talk about any of that as well. Hmm? How about which? The show Samyo? Yeah. What's your question? What does it mean? <laughs> well, no one knows. Um, 
A Dharani is a spell and it's different than a verse which is a gatha and it really is meant to be a spell to make something happen and in this case it's a spell to ward off danger. So there was probably a Pali original that became that was translated into Sanskrit. Um, the sounds of the Sanskrit were put into Chinese and anybody who knows anything about the Chinese and the Sanskrit languages knows what a leap that is. So it got put into Chinese and then um, the, the Japanese began to say the Chinese characters in the Japanese way and that's what we have. So we have the Japanese reading of a Chinese transliteration of a Sanskrit or Pali original. And, um, and we sing it in our American accented version of Japanese. So it's definitely a cross-cultural tour de force. Uh, I don't know. Is it? Huh. You mean the Shifura, Shifura, Shifura? Huh. So, so the power of it is in the sound of the words. The sound of the words are um, magical which is why we don't translate it. It's not the meaning that's important, it's the literal sound of the words, which is the Japanese version of the Chinese of the Sanskrit. <laughs> um, the, reason, the reason we still do this is because it's really the only place in the liturgy where the shamanic is present. And for some of us, it's important that the shamanic be present, um, that we not have a sense of doing everything out of our own will. <laughs> but that there, there are also um, mysterious forces that, that we can call upon, you know? It's important to acknowledge that. fundamental message is pretty simple which is none of your ideas about this mean anything that prajna is not intellectual understanding there's a there's an old Taoist saying that um, knowledge is about getting day after day wisdom is about letting go day after day the less you know <laughs> the better the less you're certain of the, le the fewer theories and schemes uh, and diagrams you have about how things are, the better. Because the idea here is that all of that stuff will get in the way, will be a hindrance to this fundamental experience of the natural state of your mind. Because that's what prajna is, the natural state of your mind. And we fill it with, with all of this stuff. Um, and that gets in the way. So I, th I think that's, that's the lesson, you know, if there's a lesson. I, I find myself that there's a, there's a tremendous joy in saying all of these no's. There's something great about being able to put it all down, one by one. That there is a place inside our own minds. There is a, pla a place we can rest in the universe where we can put everything down, 
you know, and just be there. So I often get quite happy. <laughs> Tossing them over your shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then the question becomes, what is vividly apparent when all of that stuff has been tossed over your shoulder? You know, what's true then? Is that answering your question? Say more then. Yeah. Um, try, try it this way. There are no ideas about sensation. There are no ideas about perception. There is, there is, there is a fact of being a body in the world, of, of other bodies. But we have so many ideas about what consciousness is, what sensation is. And so it's inviting you to drop away all your concepts about it and experience it directly and simply with nothing intervening, even your own ideas about it. Does that make sense? So you wouldn't even get so far as to call it sensation because calling it sensation, already that's an idea and you, you know, it's, you're saying it's this and it's not these other things. So before, before the idea of sensation enters in, what's it like to touch? I don't know. They don't, it, those are, sound quite different to me, but I don't. I don't know for sure. Paramita is um, gone to the other shore, completely crossed over, and and the gloss of that is it's the perfection of something. David, we don't do mantras in Zen, and the, uh, but the other other Mahayana countries. Mm-hmm. And I've never known why. Did they just not make it to Japan? <laughs> <laughs> um, there are mantras. They didn't make it to America. Is a little bit truer. There's. Tomorrow I'm giving a talk on the visionary traditions <laughs> in Zen and Chan, which is what didn't make it to America. And so. Um, we, the, the Zen that has come to America tends to be relentlessly non-transpersonal, if, if you know what I mean. And so there is actually a lot of that stuff, and we just don't have it. And I, that feels like a loss to me. Yes, in the way back? Oh, you mean the the two translations? Um, they're not. They're different. They're actually different tunes. They're different ways of singing them. Um, in in terms of the of the meaning, not not meant to be different. Um, so you don't usually you don't usually do the bodhisattva vows. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a it has a different rhythm. It has a little bit of a different feeling because it's a different kind of melody. But it's the same thing. You said that the 
Hot Super and the 600 volumes um, appeared. We date them back to about the common era. And that's 500 years after Buddha um, was alive. So what happened in those 500 years? Yeah. <laughs> Are they the, the written memories of the spoken word of the Buddha, or is it no. the evolved yeah. understanding of the teaching? Yes, it definitely is the evolved. They try, when, for instance, you've got Avalokiteshvara here, there's a scene, there's a little scene that gets set before this where the Buddha is sitting with everybody under the trees and Avalokiteshvara is there in, in, in um, this deep samadhi state and Shariputra, all his disciples are there and, and so you, everything gets given, you know, the, the imprimatur of the Buddha but actually um, it was, it was a, a, a completely new wave of thought. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.